0: All right, we ready to go? I got a ton of content today, so I hope to take a big breath and jump in here with me, all right? Today is Palm Sunday, and, and that's significant for a lot of reasons, which I will get to in a second, but one of the reasons Palm Sunday is significant is that it marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life here on earth, formally speaking, right? And more is written about this week in the life of Jesus than any other week in his in his life, we know more. Of the de- we actually know what Jesus did today, uh, two thousand or so years ago. This is a beautiful time of the year for the Christian church because, like no other time, the life of Jesus and our life locks into time together today. We know what he did today. We know what he's going to do tomorrow. We know some of the details of Thursday. We know a lot of the details of Friday, and we know what happens the following Sunday. So this is the beginning of this last week uh, in the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, We could say that this this week is the days leading up to the end of Jesus's ministry. <clears throat> There's another season about which we know a lot of information, some really interesting details, more on a personal side, a spiritual side. And, and those are the 40 days of temptation in the desert, which we've been talking about during the season of Lent, the 40 days where Jesus is in the wilderness, in the desert, being tempted by the devil, is what it says at the beginning of uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Um, the reason that we've been camping out in the desert with Jesus and learning from his temptations is because we want to see and experience ways that he uh, faces evil and, and deals with temptation so that we can do the same. So the 40 days in the wilderness... Begins with the baptism of Jesus, runs through the 40 days of temptation, and then following those 40 days of temptation in the desert, Jesus re enters his hometown and declares with clarity who he is and why he's come. And that's the formal initiation or beginning of his ministry. He makes it really clear who he is and why he's there. And then for the next three years, I'm looking at that timeline on your notes, for the next three years, Jesus initiates this public ministry where he pushes his identity with clarity forward and also with pushes his mission forward. And then at the end of his three-year three ministry, he rides into Jerusalem for the Passover feast and basically the last big showdown um, of his life. So the early days of Um, You've got these two seasons, uh, and they kind of serve as bookends to the three years of ministry. You've got the 40 days in the desert, and then you've got this last week between Palm Sunday today and the day of the resurrection at the end of this week. And they carry a similar purpose. They accomplish something significant. Jesus is not just this week teaching like he always has, uh, healing people who are sick, kind of doing what becomes sort of his typical ministry like in the last three years, but something very specific and and significant happens in this week. He is doing restorative work on a cosmic scale, on a big scale. To be specific, Jesus is restoring things, both in the desert before his ministry starts and here at the end of his ministry this last week. It's almost like he steps back, deals with big picture brokenness and, and, and works on this restoration of all things. Let me show you what I mean more specifically. Uh, you know how most books have a preface, like a short chapter that comes before the first chapter of the book. And in the preface, the author will say, here's what I'm about to tell you in, in my book. Well, it's to, like, the, the purpose of the preface is to signal for the reader why and for whom the content of the book matters. If you look at Jesus' 40 days in the desert as a preface, so to speak of his traditional um, three-year public ministry, the main kind of content of his book, then one of the things that the 40 days in the desert should tell us is why or for whom Jesus' ministry matters. Like, what are the ramifications of his ministry? And, and what does this scene in the desert signal is going to be the content of his ministry? Or another way of looking at it is who benefits from Jesus' decisive defeat of the devil in the desert? This could have just been forgotten in history and yet we hear about it. Who benefits from that? Jesus clearly wins the battle in the desert, so for whom does that victory matter? We could answer that in a few ways. I've kinda got concentric circles on one side of your your sermon notes. First, Jesus' defeat of evil matters to all humanity. That's the big circle. It matters to all humanity. Because all of humanity was affected by Adam's fall in Genesis. Adam succumbs to temptation. Uh, This curse begins to characterize the human race. Adam gives in to evil. He acts on the false belief that he knows better than God. And then all of creation suffers as a result. All of humanity now has this brokenness inside, right? This disordered affection, uh, selfish bent, this rebellious nature. Jesus, whom the Apostle Paul calls the second Adam, restores what was broken by the first Adam. So one way to see Jesus' temptation in the desert is to see it as a putting back together of all the things that Adam broke. The serpent appeals to Adam's appetites. The devil appears to Jesus' appetites. Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. The serpent appears to Adam's desire for power. He also tempts Jesus with the desire for power. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. The serpent appeals to Adam's uh, greediness, and he falls to it. He, the serpent, or the devil, appeals to Jesus' greed. You can have everything you want. Just bow down to me. Jesus resists him. He succeeds where, where Adam uh, fails. So at each place of Adam's failure, Jesus succeeds in order to show us how to be human. Because Adam showed us how not to be human. He showed us how to be broken. Jesus shows us how to be human. So Jesus' is victory in the desert, it benefits, it benefits all humanity. Another way you can look at this is through the lens of the people of God or Israel. That's the next circle in. In other words, Jesus' is victory in the desert, it matters for the people of God. Some people believe it's debated that the desert or the wilderness in which Israel roams around for 40 years is the same wilderness in which Jesus is tempted here for 40 days. So what Israel failed to do in 40 years, Jesus succeeds in doing in just 40 days. Israel's obedience and trust and allegiance to God breaks down Jesus' obedience and trust and allegiance to the Father remains consistent through his 40 days of temptation. Matthew's original Jewish audience would have seen Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness, in other words, in the place of their ancestors' failure, as a signal to the kind of restorative work that Jesus would accomplish in his ministry. Jesus' victory in the desert shows us how to be the people of God, shows us how to be human, And as a subset of that, it shows us how to be the people of God. And then a final way, in a very direct way, to answer the who benefits from Jesus' victory in the desert is to say you do. You benefit from Jesus' victory in the desert. Because fundamentally, Jesus' triumph in the desert matters for this reason. All the damage that the devil has caused to you through his deception, all the power that Satan has usurped from you through lies and fraud and tragedy... All the wrong that you have done because you've been tempted and you've given into it, Jesus' defeat of the devil in the desert shows that Jesus has the power to restore all that. That is not the end of the story. Jesus is going to restore all that. His ministry will be to overcome all of that stuff. All right, so the 40 days in the desert is like a preface to the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus' whole ministry will be about restoring all things. For who? All of humanity... Specifically, the people of God or Israel, and even within that group, you and me. In other words, Jesus succeeds where I fail. That's the point. Jesus succeeds where you fail. And that, friends, is good news. That is really good news. Uh, in the preface of the book, Jesus is telling us what you have been unable to do, I will do for you because I have come to rescue you. I have come because you need me to come. I've come to be your savior. And that's what we thank God for. That's the good news, right? Amen. Now, for the next three years of Jesus' life and ministry, he faces all kinds of challenges and all kinds of adversity. But I would argue that probably the most significant practical challenge that that Jesus faces is public perception. As Jesus calls his disciples and travels and teaches and preaches and heals and casts out demons, he's always having to cut through layers and layers of confusion. Have you noticed that? Who is this guy? Where does he come from? Isn't his dad a carpenter? By what power does he do these things? Why is he eating with those people? Why is he working on the Sabbath? Why does he heal in this way? Is he a prophet? Is he a fraud? Is he somebody from some Old Testament character that's come back to life? Uh, Is he the real Messiah? Is he just a teacher? There's even a corrupt Jewish king that murders John the Baptist. And then later he hears about Jesus doing amazing things and he's like, Is that John come back from the dead? Nobody knows for sure. And that's the big question. Who is this man? Then Jesus asks his disciples this question, even at one point Who do people say that I am? And they offer all these different theories based on the things that they've heard as they've traveled around. And then he makes it a personal question. And he says to them, This is the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It is the constant question surrounding the ministry of Jesus, and it is the critical question about Jesus, and it still is. It still is. This is the fundamental question. Who do you say that Jesus is? All right, let's read this story out of Matthew chapter 21 about the triumphal entry, the thing that Jesus does today uh, long, long ago. Matthew records it. He's one of the followers of Jesus in the 21st chapter of his gospel, his good news. I'll read it to you. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. And then Matthew, thankfully, inserts like an interpretive comment for us. He's the narrator. He's the story writer. And he tells us why this donkey detail is so important. I don't know which of the disciples got the donkey detail, but I think that's funny. I, I would like to like, no, who got that call? Oh, man, I got to go get a donkey. Uh, I don't know what that, why that matters. That's totally mystifying to me until Matthew explains it to me. He says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I had no idea, but apparently at the end of the Old Testament, there's this little tiny book called Zechariah, and the prophet Zechariah says this, say to daughter Zion, which is another way of referring to the people of God, or Israel, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew, as I said, quoting from Zechariah um, 9, verse 9, and the fuller passage reveals this powerful prophecy about, a God, about God freeing Jerusalem from an oppressive foreign power. Let me read a little bit more from Zechariah 9. You could probably turn there. It's on page 665. Following the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey statement, the prophet continues, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, that's another name for the people of God, I'll take away the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle battle bow will be broken. He, referring to the king who's coming in on a donkey, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, in other words, because of the promise I have made, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. I love that phrase, prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. This is a theme, restoration. Verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. Look at verse 16. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. All right, so this is... This is the prophet from which Matthew bases his understanding of the significance of Jesus coming in on a donkey on the eve of the Passover feast, which is when the Jews celebrated what? Do you remember? Do you remember what they celebrate on the Passover feast? It's when, it's right, it's when they celebrate being freed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Okay? So Jesus is signaling to the crowd. And it's not just a passive crowd. It is an amped up, zealous, highly religious crowd full of anticipation for what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying some very significant things to them. Think about it like this. Jesus could have snuck in in the middle of the night and no one would have noticed. But he doesn't do that. He does something that's very rare for Jesus. He intentionally draws attention to himself. He puts himself on a donkey and rides in, kind of playing the part, signaling to everybody, remember this, think about these things. He's doing something that is highly symbolic, highly historic, and super prophetic. This message is powerful. Matthew continues with verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. A couple of things. Uh, A comment about what they're saying and a comment about what they're doing. They're saying or singing a song from Psalm 118, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's a psalm or a prayer about an enemy surrounding God's people like a swarm of bees. And all hope is lost. And then at the very last second, God rushes in and rescues his people. That's the theme of the song that they're singing. They are saying, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save. Some people say it means, Lord, save right now. So they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. David was the most powerful king in the history of Israel. Lord, You who are the ancestor of our strongest, most successful king, save us right now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You've got the blessing of God. This is prophesied by the prophet uh, Zechariah. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's all going to go down right now, right? What are the people cheering? What they're cheering reveals their expectations for Jesus. They want him to rescue them, and they want him to rescue them right now. That's what they're saying. What are they doing? Well, they're cutting branches off of trees. John's gospel tells us that they're palm branches. That's where we get that uh, visual. And the use of palm branches is something that carried very specific meaning for the Jewish people at that time because 200 years before Jesus, this other revolutionary named Judas Maccabeus or Judas the Hammer, he led a successful revolt against the then Syrian government, which was occupying Jerusalem. 200 years before Jesus, and famously, Judas Maccabeus rides in to Jerusalem, and like the symbol of his revolution, palm branches. So people are waving palm branches, and he successfully ousts the Syrian king. He cleanses the temple. They had sacrificed a pig on the altar. It was like the ultimate disrespect to the Jewish people. He cleanses the temple, and he initiates a 100-year reign of peace in Jerusalem. And then, 100 years before Jesus, Rome comes in and smashes the whole thing. But what the people are, are remembering is this story, which is only a couple hundred years old, of this person who comes in and mounts a military revolt against the oppressor, right? Right? So what the people are doing as they sing this song about God bringing them freedom, and as they wave these palm branches, just like they did in the Maccabean Revolt. By the way, if you want to read this story, it's awesome. The Catholic Bible, the, ca- the Bible authorized by the Roman church, it includes some extra books or some books that the, that the more restrictive Protestant Bible doesn't. And there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees in that Bible. So if you grew up with a Catholic Bible, you still got one. You should, these are fascinating stories. You can read about it. It's a historic event, right? So they're uh, they're waving these palm branches. They're believing that this is the will of God to come, and it reveals a lot about their expectations about who Jesus is and about what Jesus is going to accomplish during the Passover feast. Not like us, when we're like, Jesus, come back someday. We believe you're going to return. There was no someday in their minds. It was During the Passover feast, like probably by Thursday night, he'll be here. He's going to overthrow Rome, right, by Thursday night. That's their expectation. Matthew writes in verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And it's a powerful verb. It's a Greek word from which we get the English word seismic. Seismic. So the idea is as Jesus rides into town, the place is just rumbling. Rumbling. Oh man, it's just trembling. It's just vibrating with anticipation about this revolution that's going to happen. You get the idea that people are like going underneath their beds and finding their weapons and getting ready to, you know, throw down. Because that's what they expect. The whole city was stirred and asked the question Who is this? Who is this? And they probably went to bed that night going, We think it's him. We think it's time. Game is on. Right? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And they all lived happily ever after the end. (laughs) If I were telling the story, I would love to end it here because I think it's a powerful ending. I think it's a beautiful scene. If I were writing a movie, I got this whole thing visioned, visualized, right? Jesus comes in, the donkey, the palms, everybody's chanting. It's like USA or whatever. It's like it's going, and everybody's so excited, and it's the way it should be, and it's going to be awesome, and everybody, you don't even have to tell the last story because everybody knows it's going to happen because they all have the same expectation. Um, but that's not the end of the story. That's the, that's, the, that's the twist, right? There's a twist. There's a very tragic and unfortunate twist somewhere between sunday and thursday the expectations of the crowd or i should say the perception of the crowd shifts considerably jesus does not meet their expectations and so the crowd that is shouting praise him on sunday today is shouting crucify him on friday morning and so that leads me to all kinds of questions right and so a couple of them what happened what happened <laughs> what happened there? Uh, Well, probably a million disappointments, right? Probably a million unmet expectations, which explode into fierce resentment within just a few days. On one hand, I think, how can people possibly change their mind about Jesus so fast? And on the other hand, I I know exactly how this goes, because I've seen it happen. I see this happen almost every week, when what people expect God to do doesn't happen the way they wanted it to happen, and often it's terrible and tragic and makes no sense. And it leaves us in this place of like, excuse me? What? Like, like, when a child is diagnosed with a disease or a disability, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, this is not what I was thinking when I dedicated him to you when I was doing it all right. Somebody that we trust betrays us? Like, how does this fit in? When a job that we thanked God for, it's like God gave me this job, everybody just wants you to know God gave me, and then it's gone? Like, how do we understand that? Or when the house that everybody was, oh man, God just gave us this house, it's such a gift, we're just praising God for this house, whoops, now we can't afford it? How do we, wait a minute, that's when the the expectations are not met and the perception is shifted and that praise is tempted to be twisted into something that is very much unlike praise. It happens every time people who say they trust God get disappointed with God, or not every time, but it happens often when that happens, when we get, when what we expect and what we're cheering for doesn't work out the way we want it to. You and I can change our minds about God actually pretty quickly if the situation is right, if our expectations are not realized, if God doesn't do what we want God to do. So what happened between Sunday and Thursday or Friday? Probably a million disappointments. People probably would offer a variety of specific reasons why they changed their chant. Because the whole story is full of all these varying perceptions about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. But by the time we reach today, here's the thing. Jesus rides in to the center of the Jewish experience on the eve of the biggest national holiday celebrating the identifying event of the Jewish people, i.e. the exodus from slavery. You know what? There's not a lot of confusion anymore. People know exactly what they want. They know what they think is going to happen, and they know the way they want it to happen. They're clear on that. But then one by one, people's, their expectations get crushed. Jesus doesn't do what the people want him to do. And that is legitimately hard. What he does is what he planned to do from the beginning. He does what the people need him to do. That's what he does. He doesn't come to do what we want. He comes to do what we need. That's why he comes. So, where's the disconnect there? Well, sometime in the middle of the week, uh, Matthew writes this really interesting observation. He hears Jesus say something and it, it helps me understand that switch. Here's where we see the heart of God, the longing and loving heart of God for us, and we also see our selfish stubbornness in our hearts toward God. It's in Matthew 23, verse 37. Just a couple pages to your right. This is sometime between Sunday and Thursday. Jesus says this. Sometime in the next couple days, Jesus says this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That Here's the key phrase. But you were not willing You were not willing. Jesus' whole ministry is about restoring the broken, about gathering the scattered, about healing the hurting. In the preface to his ministry, the 40 days in the desert, we see that the ministry of restoration is for all humanity and the people of God, and it's for you, and it's for me. But there's a real and practical sense in which, this is important, receiving the benefits of the ministry of Jesus is dependent upon your willingness, there's a real—it's a mystery ultimately, but there's a real and practical sense in which all of humanity's ability to receive the blessing that God has has, has uh, provided for them is dependent upon their willingness. There's a real and practical sense in which Israel's ability to benefit from the sacrifice of Christ is dependent upon their willingness to accept it, and there's a real and practical sense in which our own ability to receive the gift of God's love is dependent upon, he does not force his way in. It is dependent upon our willingness to accept what he has given for us. Willingness to do what exactly? Well, I would say in a phrase, it's the willingness to turn to God. It's the willingness to turn to God. Even in our frustration, even in our confusion, even in our grief, it's a willingness to say, I don't get it, But I know you are trying to gather me to yourself. Here's here's what turning to Jesus means more specifically. I'll just put it in a couple of, in terms of a question. Are you willing to acknowledge your need for a Savior? Are you willing to admit and acknowledge that you need God? You actually need someone to rescue you. You can't do this by yourself. You're not good enough and you're not moral enough and you're not smart enough. You're not successful enough. Are you willing to acknowledge your need? Are you willing? It starts there. Are you willing, secondly, to see Jesus? I'm kind of thinking of these in the boxes on the right side of your notes. Are you willing to see Jesus for who he is, not for who you want him to be? Are you willing to see Jesus as God, as worthy of worship, As deserving of everything that I am and everything that I have, he deserves it. Not as someone I'm trying to satisfy or make happy so that he'll give me the things I want, like Santa Claus. Are you willing? Are you willing to see Jesus for who he is, not for who you want him to be? And finally, are you willing to surrender your plans for your life to God's plan for your life? Will you submit what you want and what you choose to what God wants and what God chooses? In other words, for example, when your position on a controversial issue is challenged by the word of God, will you hold tight to your position or will you submit that position to to God's Or another example, when your priorities come into conflict with the priorities of Jesus, will you just brush aside the priorities of Jesus with some sort of empty rationale like, well, I think God just wants me to be happy? Or will you submit your priorities to the priorities of Jesus until they come into harmony with the priorities of Jesus, who, by the way, is not mysterious about his priorities. When he kicks off his ministry following his baptism, he makes it very clear. He's come to proclaim good news to the poor, He's come to free prisoners. He's come to help people recover their sight, who are blind, and to set the oppressed people free, and to declare, essentially, the mercy of God for the whole world. That's his value set. So am I willing, and are you willing, to submit our values to the, the values of Christ? This is the week, friends, that Jesus accomplishes like the major work of his ministry, the ultimate work of his mission through the cross and the resurrection. We hear his longing for us. We gather to, uh, to, his longing to gather us together and to, in love, draw us to himself, to give us not what we want necessarily, but something way more valuable than what we want. We hear his longing to give us what we need. And the question is now, it's always been the same question, really. It's are you willing? Are you willing? Am I willing? Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long, how I have longed for you, how often I have longed to draw you to myself, to gather you like a chick, like a hen gathers her chicks uh, under her wings. But you are not willing. So I want to end by just asking you to hold that palm frond in your hand and allow your eyes to see this visual. And I'd like to ask if you can imagine yourself in the crowd when Jesus rode into town and you're cheering, you're singing, you're chanting. And if you just can't get to <laughs> the ancient Near East, then imagine yourself at work and you're cheering, you're advocating for something. You're voicing your opinion. Or imagine yourself at school. You're cheering. You're declaring your allegiance. You're defending what you value. You are voicing your opinion. Or imagine yourself at home. You're in the kitchen, and you're cheering. You're cheering. You're using your voice. You're declaring what you want. This is the ultimate question, I think, this morning. Who are you cheering for? Who are you cheering for? Who are you really singing for? Who are you chanting for? For whom are you advocating? Whose opinion are you valuing? To whom are you declaring ultimate allegiance? Whose values are you defending? For whom are you raising your voice, what is it you really want? Who are you really cheering for? Who are you actually praising? Hey, you, with palm branch in your hand, who are you cheering for? For what you want? For your plans to work out? And boy, Jesus is really going to help you. With your plans. Or are you cheering for Jesus? Who loves you so much that he comes not to give you what you want, he comes to give you what you need, who walks with you in your suffering, who does not abandon you in your disappointment, who takes away your shame and gives you instead true freedom and real life. Hey you, with a palm in your hand. in the boardroom, in your kitchen, talking to your kids. Who are you cheering for? Who are you cheering for? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I ask, for, I ask for grace to face the critical need that the, the, conf, the confrontational like point at which we have to come to terms with our own selfishness. I pray for grace to face that this week, not someday, but this week. I pray that you would help us to acknowledge where we 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 really kind of slip into trying to leverage you for our own agenda. And instead, would we repent of that? Would we turn away from that? Would we say, "Would you enable us by your grace?" to wholeheartedly and authentically cheer for you. Come what may, I'm cheering for Jesus. I'm cheering for his plan, what he wants. I'm a servant of his, whatever it takes. And I just ask for the grace, Lord, to engage in this story with enough authenticity this week that it will actually uh, make a difference in our lives. Have mercy on us, Lord. We are in need of your grace. We have turned away from you. We are self-centered people. And so I pray for the grace that we need to cheer for you and your mission of restoration of all things for all people. In Jesus' name, amen.